Ephesians chapter 3, uh, verse 14, or verse 20, Kyle, Pastor Kyle preached from this last week. But the Apostle Paul prays this prayer for the church in Ephesus, for these Christians, and he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, the NIV translation says, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or think or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesus, that God would do immeasurably more in their lives. How many of you want immeasurably more for your life? Not rhetorical. Let's see the hands. Who wants immeasurably more for your life? How many of you want God to do far more abundantly than all that you can ask or even think in your life? This is what we want. This is the desire that the Holy Spirit has placed within us if we are followers of Jesus. But let me ask you a question. We want that, and we want someone to pray that for us, and we want the Holy Spirit to deliver on giving us far more abundantly than all that we could ask or imagine. But let me ask you the question, what would that even look like in your life? Like, if I were to say, I, if you were to imagine, and again, Paul says more than we can imagine, but if you were to imagine, what does immeasurably more even look like in your life? What do you want to see God do immeasurably more of in your life? And that's a great question to ask, but I want to tell you that as you think about the answer to that question, there are two dangers that we can fall into when it comes to thinking about what immeasurably more in our lives means. The first danger is that we simply view spiritual growth or what God wants to do in our lives as self-improvement or as an add-on to all the other self-improvement things we have in our lives. So we want to grow, right? We all want to grow, and so we diet, we want to get healthier, we exercise, we want to get stronger, we, you know, uh, we do all sorts of things to become better people. And many of us, we think, like spiritually, we go, okay, what I want God to do in my life is immeasurably more. I want him to make me a little better spiritually. So we, uh, we just put uh, our spiritual growth in the same category as all the other sort of things in our lives that make us better people, as if what Jesus wants to do is make you a bit of a nicer person. Jesus wants to do immeasurably more than just make you a nice person. He wants to transform your heart and conform you into the image of Jesus. But another danger we often do is we'll say that immeasurably more must mean, and we put it into the category of our professional lives or our ministry lives. See, this American exceptionalism has sort of taught us that we are what we do. We are our work. We are uh, what we accomplish and these sort of things. And so often we'll go, if God wants to do immeasurably more in my life, that must mean he wants to do something great in my career. Or he wants to do something great in my ministry. Or, you know, for me as a pastor, I go, oh, God wants immeasurably more in my life. That must mean that what God wants for my life is for this church to be full on Sunday afternoons. And yes, God wants to do those things, I'm sure. But we often, we go, what God wants to do in our lives, we immediately, because we've got this American mindset, we then put it into our careers. And we go, God wants to do immeasurably more and give us career success or professional success. 
And what we're often doing is we're thinking in terms of what the world teaches us is, is accomplishment in our lives. So I think of James and John, the disciples of Jesus, who, you know, they were really concerned with who was going to be more powerful in the kingdom of heaven. And their mom, they were even like, hey, mom, go ask Jesus, like, who's going to sit at your right hand? And so they send their mom to go ask Jesus, and, and she's like, hey, Jesus, I just want to know, who's going to sit at your right hand in the, new heaven, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus is like, James, John, sons of thunder. Like, you guys, like, you're thinking in worldly terms. What I'm calling you to do is to lay down your life for the sake of others. You see, James and John thought immeasurably more meant that Jesus was going to exalt them to a place of honor. But immeasurably more for their lives was that they would lay down their lives for the sake of the world. And I'm beginning to see in my own life that when Paul prays for God to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or imagine, he's talking about something far different than ministry or professional success. He's talking about spiritual maturity. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit conforming God's people into the image of Christ. And many of us, when we think about all the great things that God wants to accomplish in our life, that we want God to accomplish in our lives, we go straight to the big moments, don't we? Like we want God to accomplish all these great things in these big moments of our lives. Our careers, we think of our platforms, we think of our influence, we think of authority that God might give us. But I want to show you this afternoon that what God is most concerned with doing in your life and the places in your life where you will see God surprise you most with his grace and power is that he wants to make you more like Jesus. Immeasurably more is not a prayer for ministry success or a prayer for bigger churches or a prayer for professional success or prepare for a prayer for you to have all your dreams accomplished and kind of tack God onto the side of it. Immeasurably more, Paul is praying, is a prayer for the spiritual maturity of the people of God not necessarily spiritual accomplishments. See, Ephesians 4, uh, is, Ephesians 4 is our passage today, and it starts in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, okay, this is real cheesy, but this is a really good thing you need to learn when you're studying your Bible. Anytime you see therefore, you ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And because therefore is a transition word. It means I just said something, therefore, now what I'm about to say is directly related to what I just said. So Paul, it says, I therefore. So chapter 4 starts with him saying therefore, which means all the instruction he's about to give us in chapter 4 is directly related to the prayer he just prayed for us in chapter 3. So he just said, I'm praying that you would know the riches, the height, the depth, the love that is in Jesus Christ, and that God would do far more abundantly and immeasurably more in your life than all you could ask or think or imagine. Therefore, and now everything he says from this point on is an instruction on how we can live in such a way that we can experience the immeasurably more that God wants for and through our lives. So he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he quotes Psalm 68 here, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he, gave, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, cast to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's the immeasurably more that Paul is talking about, that God would form you into the image of Jesus for the sake of others and what God would do in your life and through your life as you're formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. You wouldn't even believe it if you were told. One of the common questions that often gets asked um, by people in church is, uh, what does God want to do with my life? I, that, that's the question that many people will often ask me, especially young people. They say, well, I want to know what is God's will for my life? What does God want for my life? And usually those questions are, I need to know what to major in, what school to go to, what grad school to apply for, who to marry, what career to choose. What's God's will for my life? And I usually ask people, I say, okay, I want you to take the phrase will of God or God's will, find every time it's used in the New Testament, and then tell me what you find. And what you find is that it never says the will of God is for, you know, Joe to marry, you know, Jane. It always says, it, the will of God is always succeeded by a command of Jesus to be more like Jesus. The will of God is to flee from sexual immorality. The will of God is to love one another as Christ loved the church. The will of God is to, see, the will of God for your life. God, God is so concerned with your career, your marriage, your family, all those sort of things. But what God wants most for your life is to transform your heart into the image of his son, Jesus. That is his will for your life. See, we often make it about career and family and all these sort of things, but God's will for your life is not complicated. Robert Mulholland uh, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, says that spiritual formation is the process of being formed into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. That's God's will for your life. And so I want us to talk about this today. Formed into the image of Jesus. God's will for your life is that you would develop the character of Jesus. Paul says in verse, uh, he, he says in this chapter, he, in his passage, he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, what have you been called to? Remember the therefore. It's talking about all of the first three chapters of Ephesians. The first three chapters of Ephesians tell us that you were an orphan, but God has called you to be adopted as sons and daughters. You were dead, but God has called you into new life. You were far from God, but God has called you to draw near. This is what you've been called into. Now, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of it. 
You've been adopted. Walk as someone who is a child of God. You were dead, now you've been made alive. Walk as somebody who was dead and is now alive. You, you were far from God, but you've been brought near. Walk as somebody who has been brought into something you don't deserve. And then he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is God's will for your life, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to be humble, to be gentle, and to be patient. Um, I used to, one of my favorite TV shows of all time was a show that only ran for two seasons. And many of you may know the name Aaron Sorkin. He wrote uh, the stage play of To Kill a Mockingbird here in on Broadway. He wrote West Wing, all that sort of stuff. Before he did any of that, before he was famous, he wrote a show called Sports Night. And if you're a sports fan in the house, you may remember this show. But it was a show, it ran for two seasons, and it was a show that followed kind of the cast and crew of a sports news broadcast. It kind of looked like ESPN Sports Center, And it was kind of a show about, you know, what life was like making a show. And there's a scene where one of the characters, Jeremy is a newly hired production assistant. And he's, he's excited. He's working for this new sports broadcast. And he's given the task of editing a baseball game into a 30-second highlight reel. So if you've ever watched SportsCenter, you know that they'll take four-hour games and they'll crunch it into a 30-second highlight so you can find out what happened in the game. Well, so Jeremy goes and he makes his uh, edit and he brings it to one of the anchors. He says, hey, I finished the show, or I finished the, um, this uh, highlight reel. And the guy looks at it and he says, Jeremy, it's eight and a half minutes long. He's like, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, make it shorter, 30 seconds. He's like, the highlights of the game. And he's like, well, I've tried. What am I supposed to cut? And the anchor says, well, first off, you spent the first two and a half minutes covering an entire at-bat of a baseball game where the guy just grounds out to the shortstop. And he's like, oh, but, it was, but this was an all-star, and this pitcher, like, it was an incredible thing. He says, you need to make it shorter. He's like, don't show ground outs to the shortstop. Nobody wants to see that. And I'm going to just read some dialogue to you. He says, but I can't cut that out. He said, why not? He said, well, he started off with a fastball up and in, then a slider away, a slider away, and then comes back with a split finger change, drops the curve off the table, sets him up off speed, and then he jams him high and tight. That's what got him out. He grounded out to the shortstop. And the anchor says, it was just a ground ball to the shortstop. And Jeremy goes, it was the inevitable conclusion to a job well done. He says, make it shorter. He says, just show the home runs. That's all the viewers want to see. And Jeremy was all puzzled. See, here's what was happening. If you're not a sports fan, you're like, what, did, what, did, what are you talking about? This guy, Jeremy, was just a huge sports fan. And when you're a big sports fan, what you love most about the game is not the highlights. You love the little intricacies of the game, the little details, the little, the, all those little things that make the game exciting. And, uh, it, and he was, it was so puzzling for him that viewers might not want to have all those tiny little beautiful details. They just wanted to see the home runs and the touchdowns and skip all the, uh, the boring parts of the game. See, he was, Jeremy was watching the game with a completely different set of eyes than what, they, what the, their, his uh, team was telling him the viewers wanted to see. And so I think what, the reason I tell that story is we view our lives like viewers watch Sports Center. We think it's only about the home runs and the touchdowns and the game-winning shots that matter. And we think the people that are making those shots and doing all the incredible things for God, those are the ones that are doing the important work. And they're the ones that matter. But here's the thing. When God looks at your life, he doesn't look at your life like the average sports night viewer. He looks at your life the way Jeremy looks at that game. 
He finds so much beauty and delight in the small, unseen by most people moments where you are displaying the character of Jesus. You may think that it's nothing of consequence, but it's the little moments where you demonstrate the character of Christ in your life where God gets most excited about you. See, when God chose David to be king of Israel, it wasn't because David was impressive, because David was not. He was small, he was a shepherd, he was dirty, he was stinky, he was young, he wasn't a warrior, he wasn't a leader, but God chose him in 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, the Lord sees not as man. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And listen, what is God's will for your life? It's not for you to do any, it's not that you would, your outward appearance would be impressive. It's that your heart would be transformed into the image of Jesus. Your role God is writing a story in this world. God is drawing all things to himself. And you go, what is my role in the story? Am I going to be Billy Graham who preaches to tens of thousands and millions of people? Maybe. But your role in the immense story of God's redemption of the world is not that you would be the center of the story or even be a co-star in the story. It's that you would allow him to form within you the character and the heart of Jesus. Do you want to experience immeasurably more in your life? You see, we often think that immeasurably more is all about the cultivation of skill and influence. But Paul says immeasurably more begins by cultivating cultivating patience, humility, and and forbearance with others. He says, with all humility and gentleness, we are to bear with one another in love. Paul is telling us here to take on the character of Jesus. We just read earlier this afternoon, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I'm gentle and humble. This is who Jesus is, and this is who God is calling you to be. Humility, all humility. This is what God wants for your life, for you to be humble. Have a, 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 humility, if I can just summarize it as briefly as I can, it is having the mindset that everyone in the room is more important than you. Have this in mind, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself to the point of becoming, uh, to the form of a servant, obedient to the point even of death on a cross. This is what humility is. It is walking into the room and going, I am here to be a blessing to the people in this room. I'm not here for them to cater to me and my preferences and my desires. People do not exist to serve you. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we are called to have the mind of Jesus. We are called to humble ourselves so that we can exalt others. And by doing that, we exalt Jesus. You see, when you display humility, even if no one else sees it, you are doing something in the eyes of God that is as spectacular as Billy Graham preaching to a million people in Central Park. Do you believe that? Like a moment, just an unseen moment of humility in the eyes of God is just as important as some great thing done by someone in front of lots of people. That's humility. Gentleness, the word for gentle. And the scripture is actually related to a wild animal being tamed. It's not being weak and passive. Gentleness is not being a pushover. It's actually strength under control. That's what it means to be gentle. 
like when I'm gentle with my four-year-old daughter, it's not because I'm weak. I'm actually much stronger than her. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I look pretty small, but I'm stronger than my four-year-old. To be gentle with her is to, to restrain my strength and be tender with her. And you see, we, we, we live in a culture that's so harsh right now, isn't it? Oh, everybody's so angry and mad and passionate and convicted. Like, everybody's got these strong convictions and passions. And it feels like our culture tells us we have to flex our power to make our convictions and our passions known. And we have to be harsh with our critics, we have to be harsh with our opponents, or we will lose everything. So gentleness is not allowed because it's just, it, 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 it puts us in a state of vulnerability. Christians, if you are called to be formed into the image of Jesus, you're called to be gentle, to restrain yourself for the sake of others. Then Paul goes on, he says, we're to have patience and we're to bear with others. Um, people are annoying, aren't they? Yeah, people are annoying, right? I, I mean, people are annoying. This is why patience is hard. People are annoying. So it's hard to be patient with others. But think about Jesus and his disciples. If you've read the New Testament, you know that the disciples were annoying. Like, Jesus, here he was, the most spiritually mature person to ever walk the planet. He's perfect union with God the Father all the time. And then he's got a guy like Peter who just can't seem to focus. You know that, that ha- that's annoying. Here's Jesus who's got this faith. He's doing the will of the Father even when it costs him everything. And then Thomas is like, well, I don't know. You've got James and John who just, they're ready to fight all the time. They're more concerned about where they're sitting. When Jesus, you know, right, when Jesus defeats all their enemies, they're more concerned with where, how close to the power center they are. And you know that had to be annoying for Jesus because he's like, I want so much more for your life. But Jesus, all throughout the New Testament, not only is he patient with them, but he walks with them. And by, through his patience, they are transformed into really, really exceptional men. Like, who Peter was when we first see him in the Gospels and who Peter is when he's being crucified upside down at the end of his life, what a transformation. And it's because Jesus was patient with him. And we must be, if we're Christians, we must be patient with others. Because when you are patient with others, you are advancing the kingdom of Jesus in this world. I have three kids, one of which has special needs. So, I've had my patience tested a handful of times in my life, right? And here's what I've learned. One of the hardest things in the world is to cultivate patience. You know what I mean? Like, any, like it's just hard. Anybody who has coworkers, anybody who has kids knows that patience, it's like, that's the hardest thing. And when it comes to like all the spiritual virtues and attributes that we have in our lives that are related to our spirituality, that feels like one of the hardest things. Listen, I'm telling you, I can get up in front of a room full of people, I can preach a sermon, and I can pray with you guys, and I can look the part, and I can look like I've got it all together, and I can do those things pretty well. And you guys think, man, this guy, he's, he's, he's all right. But patience, boy, that's hard to cultivate. That is really hard to cultivate. 
Because when my kids, they're disobeying or they're screaming at each other or they're just being in my way, you know, a hallway, small hallways in New York City apartments, they're just always there. And it's so hard to be patient with them, to bear with them. But in those moments where out of a love for my kids and a desire to be more like Jesus, that I show patience with them, do you know that God delights in that? God delights in that. That is the immeasurably more that God wants to do in my life. God is as if not more concerned with my patience with my children on a Sunday afternoon than he is with how good the sermon that I preached was earlier that day. We are called to become like Jesus, and this means we are called to be patient. So if you want to know how spiritually mature am I, don't look to your strengths Don't look to your accomplishments. How spiritually mature are you? There are three indicators. Are you humble? Are you gentle? And are you patient? And are you growing in these areas? This is the type of person God wants to make you into. But he doesn't do this merely for you. He does this. He's forming you into the character of Jesus, not just so that you can be into the character of Jesus, but so that you can be formed into the character of Jesus for the sake of others. In verses 4 through 16, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about the role of pastors and church members. And just I'll give you a quick summary. Paul essentially says that every person who is a Christian, everyone who has surrendered to Jesus, been saved and forgiven by the blood of Jesus on the cross, and has believed in his resurrection, every person who is a Christian, if you have believed in Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit has now poured out on you a blessing and gifted you with a spiritual gift or a spiritual attribute that you, can, that you are to use to be a blessing to others and build others up. Spiritual gifts are given to Christians by God for the church. And they're also, and this is one of the things, people, we talk about spiritual gifts, people go, ooh, I want to know what my spiritual gift is. And there's all sorts of spiritual gifts listed in the scriptures. Administration, discernment, encouragement, evangelism, hospitality, faith, generosity, wisdom, prayer, leadership, mercy, prophecy, teaching, pastoring. These are all possible spiritual gifts that God may have given you. And a lot of people get super anxious about wanting to know which spiritual gift has God given me. And so there's actually even online tests, like Myers-Briggs, you know, tests, where you take a test and it's like, your spiritual gift is this or whatever. And we get so worked up about trying to find exactly what our spiritual gift is, and then we try to find a place to serve God that perfectly aligns up with what we think is our spiritual gift. But listen, here's the point that we often miss. We think so much about what gifts do we have, but the real purpose is that you would be a gift. Like, the purpose of is that you would be a gift. A more important question than what is my spiritual gift is how am I being a gift to others? How am I allowing the Spirit of God to function through my life so that I will be a gift to this church community and to the world around me? This is what it means to have spiritual gifts. It's not that we've got to figure out exactly what our spiritual gift is so that we can find the right place to serve and do it exactly. Those are all good things, but the point of the spiritual gifts is that you would be a gift to others. Are you being a gift to others? And then Paul, he tells us what the job of a pastor is. And you're like, well, the job of a pastor is to preach good sermons. The job of a pastor is to 
grow a church. The job of the pastor is to share the gospel with my friends and my family members. And the job of, the job of the pastor is to help me be, uh, achieve all my spiritual goals. Nope. The job of a pastor is to empower church members to fulfill the ministry that God has given them. God has given us pastors, apostles, prophets, teachers, shepherds to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Many of us think that it's the pastor's job to do the ministry, but actually the calling of the pastor is to equip the saints to go do ministry and to live out their callings. And so the reason, and you got, Pastor Kyle is awesome at this. He's on vacation right now. Um, one of the great things he's good at is empowering you to live out, to use the gifts God has given you. He's so good at that. But the reason Pastor Kyle and me, we stress the importance of things like being in a growth group and being on a serve team is not because there are things we need to get done and because we want people to show up in people's living rooms every week. The reason we, we constantly are inviting you to be a part of these things is because these are the very places where God wants to do immeasurably more in your life. It's in a group where you display patience and you cultivate patience because there's annoying people in groups. You go, I don't, man, I went to a growth group one time and the people were just kind of annoying. Yes, that, it's a group of people. And, but it's annoying people who cultivate patience within you. And when you display patience to annoying people, that is God working through you and doing immeasurably more than all you could ask or imagine in you. That is what God wants for you. You're like, man, these growths are just awkward. Yes, but it's through the awkwardness that God makes you more patient, more humble, and more gentle. This is why we ask you to serve, because it's where you serve. Serving is building other people up. It's where you do something that's not about you. It's about someone else. And that's where God forms his image into you, is when you're giving yourself out. So that's why we ask you to do those things, not just because we need things to get done, but because we believe it's integral to your growth as a follower of Jesus. So spiritual maturity is being formed into the character of Jesus for the sake of others. And let me just tell you, that's what you really want. That's what you really want. That's what God has wired you for. There is the, the lie of the world is that your happiness is found in you getting yours and having your needs met and achieving all your accomplishments. But the truth is that the good life is found in blessing others. New York Times columnist David Brooks makes a distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are impressive. Those are the things you can put on your resume. Here's how awesome I am. But when it's your funeral, no one cares about your resume. Your resume is meaningless at your funeral. Eulogy virtues are the virtues that people talk about long after you're gone. And eulogy virtues are the virtues that don't just benefit you or advance your desires, but they transform the lives of others. Eulogy virtues are the immeasurably more. No one will care what you accomplished. Even if, uh, no one will care what you accomplished in your life. They will care whether you were like Jesus. There's a... So we cultivate gentleness and humility. We form ourselves into the, we, we, we allow the Spirit to form us into the image of Jesus. This is what's most important. There's a popular podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I don't recommend the podcast unless you are the most spiritually mature and discerning person. 
But the podcast is really popular right now, but it follows a church from Seattle, Washington years ago and a pastor named Mark Driscoll. Years ago, Mark Driscoll, and Mark Driscoll is a very, very good communicator, and he was and is a very, very smart man. And years ago, he planted a church in Seattle, Washington, and it grew really quickly. And at one point, uh, Pastor Driscoll became convinced that God's will for his life, God's calling on his life, and he stated it this way, the vision God has given me is for our church to have 10,000 people and for us to plant 1,000 churches. You're like, whoa, that's a great vision. And he did it. Their church is one of the fastest growing churches in the world. They were planting churches all over the place, but there was one problem. Driscoll was not displaying gentleness, humility, or patience. He was a jerk. He was mean to his staff. He was abusive to volunteers. And eventually, he was fired because he, was, he created such a toxic environment that he was fired by his elders and his deacons. And the overnight, a church of 10,000 ceased to exist. And the, the story there is not, what a jerk. The story is that that's in all of us. Because here's the problem. This was Driscoll's problem. I, this is my assessment of it. He became convinced that God's, the vision God wanted for his life was for him to build a church of 10,000 people. Is that a wrong, is that a bad vision? Of course not. That's great. But Driscoll became convinced that if that was the number one thing God wanted for his life, then he had to pursue it with everything. And sometimes getting to 10,000 meant that he had to be very rude to a staff member and drive his staff extra hard, drive his volunteers extra hard. And what happened was he said, this is what God wants for my life. And so he used that to justify not doing the things that God actually wanted for his life. And you're, and you're like, you're, it's hard for you to translate that to your life. Listen, how many dads do you know that have said, God's calling on my life is to provide for my children all the things that I never had? That's a good calling, isn't it? But how many dads have used that to justify not being gentle, not being humble, not being patient, not being present with their kids? You see, often we, get, we overcomplicate God's call for our lives, and we get these big, grand, huge visions. But at the end of the day, what God is calling you to do is to be more like Jesus. And this is my prayer for you, that each of us would catch a vision for what God wants for your life, a vision that's not influenced by how the world sees you, but it's influenced by what God wants to do in your heart. I pray that God would do immeasurably more in each of your lives that those parts of self-centeredness in your heart would be transformed into humility. That those harsh feelings that you have toward other people that don't see things the way you do would be transformed into gentleness. That that obsession you have with your own agenda and your own comforts, that God would transform that into patience with others. And I pray that God would do that with each and every one of us and that all of us would have the mind of Jesus to serve each other, and that God would then use transformed people serving one another to build this church into a place that is beautiful and attractive to the world around us. I got more, but I started this service 10 minutes late, and so I'm not going to keep you much longer. But here's, here's what I want you to see. On the cross, Jesus defeated our enemies. 
sin, death, Satan. He saved us. He has a place prepared for you in heaven if you are a follower of Jesus. And we often go, we often stop at the cross. At the cross, Jesus forgave my sins. But there's more to the gospel. And that is that three days later, he got out of the grave. He rose to new life, meaning you not only can be forgiven for your past, but you can have a new life. But then he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father. And from heaven, he distributes heavenly gifts onto his people so that we can use those gifts to show others what heaven is like. Jesus saved you so that you could know him, so that you could become like him, and so that you could show him to others. The resurrected life is a gifted life. And if you are a Christian, you are gifted And the Spirit is forming you, Lord willing, into a gentle, humble, and patient person for His glory and for the sake of others. Let me pray for you, church. God, we thank you for... God, thank you for your Spirit that is transforming us. God, there are so many dreams I have for this church. God, I want to see us fill this room I want to see us, God, I want to see us purchase a facility in this neighborhood. I want to see us reach people that are lost and far from you. I want to see us, God, grow. I want to see us have exciting events that serve our neighborhood. But God, I think what you're reminding us of in this passage, that the main thing that you want to do in us is that you want to make us a group of people who are more like Jesus. All the other things are great, but the most important thing, God, is not that we have ministry success, but that we become like Jesus. And so, God, would you make us more like him? Would you give us humility? Would you give us gentleness? Would you give us patience? Something our world is lacking. All three of those things our world lacks so much of. And God, forgive us for not displaying those things because the world needs the church to demonstrate what Jesus is like. So, God, make us more like you more like Jesus for the sake of others. And it's in your name we pray.